Okay, so this has so much content. This is the weirdest thing. This was a complete afterthought. Nothing came. I mean, this just completely adaptive behavior. At the end of the day, it just felt like the right thing to do. But there's so much content that you're what you're about to explore is a two-part podcast. Yes, there is a cliffhanger in this podcast. It's There's so much um, that it seemed like it would be a better two-part podcast. So sit back and relax because... I think you're in for a ride. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. I'm Todd Conklin. It's the day of the podcast, even though this is actually two podcasts in one, which is kind of nice because I'm going to have like double the content. So that that's kind of... Uh, a treat. I mean, and it's probably twice the work, but that's all right. We can talk about that later. So you guys know that uh, earlier this year in 2023, which that's weird to say out loud as well, but we had um, an open meeting in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which people have taken to calling the Conklin Conference, which actually completely freaks me out and seems very egotistical. Not as egotistical as people who have classes and call them master classes, which drives me bananas. I don't even get that, but we could talk about that later. But we had this open this open conference, and the reason we had it is because there was a lot of requests for it, so that made sense. And um, and it's a really good opportunity for people who who their company may not be ready to jump in on this, or it's it's too expensive to bring people in, or whatever. They can come and go to this meeting, and so it's always kind of fun. And I like them because I get to invite a bunch of cool people to hang out and and have conversations, and I get to watch the presentations because I'm there, and that's always great. So this one was really fun. Mark Yested was there. Um, uh, Jen Long on accountability. Martha Acosta was there. Uh, Bob Edwards. Uh, Andrea was there. Uh, Ivan was there. There was a whole. There was a pretty good crowd of people that that were there, and it it was fun. I mean, we had a great time, you know, enjoying the executive sandwich lunch because that is a really good luncheon because you get to make your own sandwiches and it's all about control. At least with lunch, it's all about control. And so we had this meeting, and it went great, and it was. Uh, four days, which is a long, probably too long for a meeting, if you ask me. But that fourth day, about three o'clock in the afternoon, we were finished. And some people need to catch planes. You know, it's the the end of a meeting. So you know what that looks like. You've been to the million end of a meeting. And we had all these people here. And I thought, it'd be kind of an interesting opportunity to have just a panel discussion. And we could talk about what we talked about. And so that's exactly and precisely what we did, we gathered a group of people, and it was Mark Yeston and Ivan and Jen Long and Martha and myself. Was there anyone else? I think that's it. And we just brought some chairs in. We kind of moved chairs. People just sat around. It was pretty casual for sure. And then the decision was made, let's record this for the podcast. And so I was like, that's a great idea because then you guys get to hear it if you didn't get to go to the conference. And we opened it up to any question you wanted to ask. Any question, it's all available, and that's kind of what happened. Now, there's an interesting joke that runs through this entire little podcast, at least I think it's interesting, and that is there was a member of the United States Navy that was there who said, I'm, I'm really I'm super interested in sitting in on this panel, but I don't want to say anything because if I do, people will make fun of me. 
And so we used his code name every chance. You'll hear it. Every It's Jersey. And you're going to hear us talk about Jersey all the way through. And the reason that existed is because every time we said his name, it made him more and more uncomfortable. And you guys, that's just fun to watch. There's just no question about it. But then he turned the tables on us. You'll see. I mean, he, the tables were turned. And in fact, social justice being what social justice is, it leveled back out. He got us in the end. So it all worked pretty, pretty perfectly. The questions are just wide open questions. But I kind of like that. Because that gives us the opportunity to really listen to some of the burning issues that exist in the world. And I think you'll find it interesting as well. Um, I know you will. Actually, I think this was a pretty good idea, albeit completely accidental, without planning, no intention to do this. I mean, this was this is absolutely and completely adaptation. In fact, the desperate need to set microphones up, well, you'll see. I'm sure we could have made it sound better. I'm positive we could have made it sound better. But we didn't have any time because we decided to record it at the last minute. So that's what you're going to get to enjoy. And I think you're going to find this to be entertaining. It, it ran longer than I thought it would. There were more questions than I thought there would be, which is why it sort of it snuck out to a two-parter. But that'll make it kind of interesting as well. And it'll give you something to look forward to this week. And isn't that what it's all about? creating artificial drama so that you have something to look forward to the rest of the week. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to listen carefully to the pod. You know the characters because I listed them out for you. You know the scenario because that's where we were at that very tail end of this meeting on a Thursday at 3 o'clock. And you're going to get to hear the questions. Now, the questions are just questions. And I thought about jumping in and telling you who was asking them. But I actually think it's better to not. Um, because then they have sort of a sense of anonymity and maybe that's good for everybody in their company. And maybe it's good for them personally and professionally as well. Cause I'm not sure I would want to be associated with me. If I had the choice, I would probably find other people to associate with. So th that's just my theory on that, but I want you to sit back and relax and enjoy this. Cause I think you're going to find this conversation to be interesting as, as it can possibly be. All things are good here, still waiting on the weather to turn, although it is much better this week than it was last week. So that's a plus. Without much more fanfare, because I don't really need to stall for time, that is not important, let's get into this panel discussion and see what you guys think. Here we go. This is the Conklin Conference of 2023 in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the open question and answer and discussion period that happened at the very tail end of our meeting. Sit back and relax and tell me what you think about it. I I'm curious to hear what you think about this little conversation. So, if you're ready. So, yeah, well, do you guys have any... So, first of all, it was an incredible week. Thank you. It was so much fun for all of you that were here, for people who came early, stayed late. It was really nice to have you on board. Um, I knew that it was going to be exciting and fun, and it was exciting and fun, and we had a great time. But what made it great were you guys. The questions you asked this week were amazing. You were interested. You asked interesting things. And I like the fact that we're all on this journey together. But what I really like about it is the improvement that we all know we're making. It's hard to measure, but because of this work, I think good things happen and bad things don't. So that's a pretty groovy way to look at it. So we're here, we're wide open for what's going on. I've got just some quotes that I've taken 
throughout the days we were together that you'll sort of recognize some of them pretty early. Uh, has there ever been an organization where blame worked? That was a big part of it. Has any organization ever punished this win to success? That's a good discussion. But this one's probably my highlight. Oh, where is it? Did I lose it? Was it up there already and I passed it? Yep. This is my highlight, the romance of the black line. I've thought about that the entire time. I just think that's a brilliant way to look at it. So, okay, so we're open for questions if you guys have any. I have lots more slides, so that's easy. Here it comes, first question. Long time listener. First time caller. So there's someone named Jersey here I'm supposed to acknowledge? That's a friend, friend of Jersey. Friend of Jersey. As we transition from traditional safety into safety differently, and we want our field safety specialists, whatever we call them, to be embracing that, one of the questions that I anticipate is if our people aren't out there looking for stuff to fix, trying to stop things from happening, what the heck are they going to do out in the field all day? Wow, really? You, that's you, that's a question I anticipate. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So I think there are many questions in that question, so that's a good one. And I would like to start, and then I'll kick it to anybody, just because I think there are two populations in your organization that are vital to make sure they have deep dive exposure to the foundations and a safe place to ask questions. And those two groups are your leadership, pretty much from the senior level down. Leadership needs a place to ask questions and push back and feel the resistance. The second group are your safety professionals. There's a little bit of sunk cost in your safety professionals. They kind of have the most to lose. Because if we change the way we manage safety, we're kind of sort of telling them in a roundabout way that the work they used to do is not very valuable and this new work is more valuable. So we need to be careful and really present that in such a way. My advice is to really always attach new knowledge to old knowledge. Use the foundation that they bring to the profession as that. That's an amazing foundation that's really gotten us to where we are. No question on that. This will bust that asymptote and take us to the next level. Now, I think the idea of not having anything to do is very cute, and I'd like to toss that to anybody else. Who would I, I would imagine your le- the last problem you have is your people don't have enough to do. I, just, just saying. Well, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting is around the language and maybe how we change the language and the understanding of the work. So, you know, what's the narrative about what the work is? Fix seems like an end. Like, you're supposed to fix things, and then you never have to touch that again. That's assuming that we live in a world where nothing ever changes. And, of course, we don't live in a world where nothing ever changes. I love the idea of safety capacity or even organizational capacity, all these different capacity ideas, because you always have to maintain it. You have to maintain that capacity as things change. You know, it, it, as you run up against a barrier and it, and it bends and it loses its ability to keep somebody from falling off a cliff, you fix, you improve, you fix that, but it's really you're maintaining it. You're maintaining safety. And um, that is an ongoing job. So we, we've been teaching now for six years, we've been teaching New View concepts in our master's degree program at the University of Alabama. And most of the people that we have are safety professionals. What we're finding is that the graduates are walking away from that with a renewed interest and a renewed vigor and a new suite of 
of, I hate to use the word tools, but a new suite of <coughs> approaches to safety that is making them more valuable to their organizations. So, Todd, the, the idea of them giving something up, I think they have much more to gain I agree. than they do to give up. I agree. But I think the initial response is kind of that sunk cost protection. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know this system. I run the system. I invented this system. And so it's hard to give up. Once they give it up, I think it's... Yeah. There's, there's, kind there's of, a fear. That, it's the that secret, right? Doing something new is going to yeah. really change things yeah. for the, the worse, right? I think there's some wiggle room there, too, Todd. You know, it's, yeah, there's a sunk cost, and yeah, there's that implication that if we ask you to do something different, it means that what you were doing before didn't hold value to us. But how many safety professionals have you worked with or been out in the field with that tell you, like, you know, I hate it when these people see me as a safety cop. Yeah. That's not the role I want to have, yeah. you know? That role is out there. I was just at a meeting in Las Vegas, and there, there is a contractor service where they actually dress up <laughs> like police people. And, it's, and they have uh, blue vests with reflective stuff with a pretty convincing-looking badge. And on the back of their stuff, it says, you know, whatever, Division 6 safety, uh, no tolerance zone. And they go on to work sites, find violations, and physically escort people off of the sites. So there's some people who want to do that. But I think a lot of people who are in that role, it's not really why they're doing that work and they want to improve things. And giving them the opportunity, not telling them what you did in the past wasn't good, but giving them the opportunity to be more a part of that effort is a good thing. I think they welcome it. Who do you think hires the safety cops? I don't know. The TSA. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the TSA. Here's here's what I'll say just in terms from a leadership development perspective. The most successful people you can promote into any role in leadership are those who have agility, right, and learning agility, which is the ability to let go of knowledge that is no longer relevant to adopt knowledge that is. And in listening to Mark talk about the the learning and the mind maps and what you gather from that and how that carries you through the evolutions of becoming more safe and doing it better, that skill set in and of itself is critical in terms of the, who you, the people you put in those positions. Did you guys just hear Jersey sneeze? <laughs> it wasn't really. No fear. Anybody else? What other questions do you have? So some of the companies here, I'm sure, are openly traded companies. And so those companies fall in love with the metrics, right? And when we do this hop approach, we talk a lot about culture. And I feel like they want a measurement on culture. And so I try to respond back with, we can't measure the culture, but we can monitor the culture. And then I take the standpoint of the the capacity, right? Time, energy, effort, resources. And then also the confidence in the worker and being engaged and being curious, right? And talking about how Mark and Ivan talked about curiosity and humility. And is there any other stance I could take on that to try to persuade somebody that's so focused on metrics and KPIs into wanting to adopt the hop philosophy, if that makes sense? First of all, you should know you ask beautiful questions. Yeah. <laughs> Great question. What do you guys think? I'd probably start with Greg Smith's book on paper safe and take a look at what he has to say about that. The idea of uh, TRIR and KPIs and all these things that we think we're measuring. Um, we, we started there in the Forest Service, certainly. That was one of the things that we looked at. But leadership quickly realized that our discussions about risk and our discussions about hazard and our discussions about accidents and how we viewed them changed radically when we started down this path. And so while we didn't have quantitative metrics, we had qualitative metrics. And I would urge that direction. Did we end up with quantitative metrics? Maybe. I mean, you can take you can take credit for just about anything, right? Our accident rate did go down, but more importantly, the thing that really decreased in the Forest Service when we started learning review 
which, which replaced serious accident investigation in 2013, is we stopped being sued by families, which was a big deal because we could guarantee that we'd get a lawsuit from the families. And we stopped getting OSHA violations because we literally invited OSHA to the table. And it's kind of interesting because we did that, and shortly after we introduced OSHA to the learning review, they changed a guide that they now publish called Accident Investigation Guide for Employers. And if you take a look at that, the language in that is substantively better. The process still goes back to root cause analysis, so they haven't quite jumped off the ledge, but they're getting close. It's scary. And I'm aware of organizations, I've worked with several, that um, they still collect all the metrics, and they, and they, and they do all that. Because, and they'll tell you right up front, this is who's the people who are hiring us want to see these things, you know, and we still collect them and we get whatever benefit we can from them. But our internal communication isn't that, hey, we're just doing this for window dressing. It's like, this isn't enough, you know, and what we're doing to change the things in our organization that make us better and safer don't necessarily rely on these numbers. We're still collecting them because that's how people judge us and see if they want to work with us. And I was at a meeting uh, right, one of the first meetings after things started to loosen up after COVID, big construction company, uh, and it was just an internal meeting of the company, and the guy that went on before me was their data dude, and he was really nice, and I talked to him a bunch, and, um, and I was watching his, I mean, he had scatter diagrams and pie charts, and just, he was very earned, and he had some good stuff in there, but his final moment was pretty interesting. He had this big diagram behind him, he says, so for instance, and I just ran this a couple days ago, but I can tell you that pretty consistently over the past 18 months of operating, our most dangerous time at work is Wednesday between 2 and 4.30 p.m. on average. Thank you very much. And I was sitting there thinking like, Siesta. I don't know what that means. You know, and I'm not really good with graphs anyway, and I hope I don't get asked about this. And so I went up and I did my talking. And, and of course, the, the big boss was the senior leader was back there. And he was very pleased with the work that this data person was doing. But he asked me kind of right point and blank at the end of the meeting. He said, so what do you think about this Wednesday being the most dangerous day? And I could see the data guy looking like, oh, no, you know, maybe he's going to say something mean. And all I could think to say was, if you know anybody who knows me, you know I'm totally against Wednesdays. I want two Fridays, you know, maybe an extra Saturday, you know. So I think there's good data and there's bad data. We need to be a discriminant. But I think we also have to recognize some of the stuff we're going to collect is we're collecting for other purposes rather than actually making things safer. It's how we represent ourselves to the world. But if I may, I would take your question to a, a different level. I would kind of go to first principles. So when shareholders, boards of directors, uh, hiring contractors, the, the populations that really care about those numbers, when they're asking for those numbers, I think it's really important for us to sort of sit back and think, what do they really want from that metric? And what they want is the ability to predict the future. Mm-hmm. They want the ability to say, if I hire you or if I continue to buy your stock or if I continue to be on the board of directors, that tomorrow will be better than today. And so if you think about that as kind of the first principal need that that population has, then there are actually kind of a multitude of ways to help remove uncertainty from the future. You can't guarantee the future, but metrics can't guarantee the future. Past performance is never indicative of future performance. If you've ever bought anything financially, they tell you that a million times, right? What you have to do really is tell the story of your organizational capacity. And what's been so interesting on this journey, at least to me, and I'm curious what you guys think, is when we first started talking about capacity, 
it was really hard. And people would say, I don't know what you mean. Tell me what you did. I don't get that. I don't understand what you mean. Over the last several years, the capacity question has actually become much more interesting to shareholders, to boards of directors, to consumers, to hiring officials. They really want to look not at the guarantee nothing bad will ever happen, but actually at the guarantee that when something bad happens, this organization have, has enough tolerance in their system that they can manage that. Or as Mark said it so beautifully, I kind of teared up weirdly. Oh. <laughs> I did. It was really emotional to me on that, that helicopter crash. I mean, that's a great story. That wasn't the emotional part. But when he talked about the fact that you choose the accident you have, and I actually think if we could get that on a sticker, that's the right thing. Because we're going to fail. There's no question about it. Your company's going to have failure. You ought to be really actively involved in choosing the failure you have. Because you can choose a failure that's much more manageable, much more sellable to the public, much less consequential, you know, much more positive towards learning. That's a really interesting idea to me. Stay tuned. You'll hear more. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Jen? I like it. I'm, I'm thinking about um, that Mark Marin book, The Subtle Art of How Not to Give Up. And he talks about problems, right? It, uh, we are happiest solving problems. And that really the icing on the cake of the problem-solving thing is just being able to pick the problem. And we, that's what we love to do, is solve the problem. So if we could just pick them, that would be awesome. And the stock market hates surprises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or at least not good with it, eh? <clears throat> I wonder, first of all, thank you all for being here and doing this conference. But uh, like a lot of people here, I'm dealing with supervisors that have been in their jobs 20, 30 years. And I'm wondering if there are anything that, whether it's accountability, psychological safety, learning, that you could boil down into one or two tips for kind of winning over those long-term supervisors, the, the old school guys. So somewhere in your, in your files, you've got your previous accident investigations or inquiries or whatever else. You know, dust off some of those and look at the findings in those through the new lens of the way that you're trying to think now. Uh, or as the operations have just evolved, you can go back just a few years and find like ridiculous, you know, cause statements, the other things that the organization has grown way past. And when you point that out, you know, it, it makes it a little bit easier to think about these things. And that's good work that they did, but things have changed. And the idea about doing work is we get better at it. They got the ones where the corrective action says advise employee to be more careful. Right, right, right. right. Care more. Yeah. Yeah. Care more. Bigger sticker. We were really successful at getting our leadership to embrace complexity. So having the dialogue with leadership around that systems are complex and what are the limitations of a complex system? What does that afford you? What does that remove from from your table? And, you know, firefighting is a language of control. Think about it. Everything we do is control, right? And yet we have no control. And so one of the things that the field came up with, and I think this is really a beautiful thing, when you ask the field how to to relate to leadership, usually they come up with some pretty good little things. Our field came up with in command and out of control. And it put our leadership in a position where they began to question. And if you can get that done, that one little piece, get them to ask a question, an honest question, humble inquiry. If you can get them to that space, you're going to find that it opens up a, a floodgate. It starts the whole cascading event of them starting to learn about their system. And that's what you really need. If that population is not 
giving you what you think you need in the organization, it's not that population. It's the way you're managing the information, accountability, training, exposure, safety, psychological safety. It's the way you're managing. My rule is anytime a group resists, it's not the group. It's the approach we're taking. Because the one thing I have control over is I can't control the mind of every individual superintendent or supervisor. They're in that pinch point. They've got accountability up, accountability down, probably accountability sideways, backwards, forwards. So if I can't manage that, and I can't, then what I manage is the system around them that can be as successful as it possibly can for them. And so my advice, it's really simple, is just keep trying stuff. Find some. Well, there's two things. One is, and let me just ask you this question, and I mean it lovingly so there's no secret barb on it. Have, have you brought a group of supervisors in and said, what will it take to successfully communicate a new paradigm shift in the way we think about operations? Actually, I've not. I've had a couple of those individual conversations one-on-one, uh, but not as a group, no. Yeah, I would bring a group in and ask them what they need because they'll tell you what they need. And my guess is, call me later, is that the resistance you're feeling towards this new idea is probably not about this new idea. There's probably a deeper, more significant foundational issue that they want to deal with. I mean, and and that's an important part of the process. Can I tell a story on you guys? So we did a meeting with a large organization in Canada. It was great. I will tell you it's the only time I've been in an executive-level conference room that had a built-in bathroom. And all I could think is, if anybody poops, I'm out of here. That's all. That's all. And don't act like you weren't there, too. You were, I mean, right? But it was really interesting because one of the questions that came up from the supervisors is they had to spend, a, 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 I would say, a tremendous amount of time in timekeeping. Fair enough? A lot, a lot of time. Because the timekeeping was very important to the regulator. It was very important to the organization. And it was pretty stinking complex. So it's taken them a couple days just to report time every week. And one of the most interesting things is, is that when that was brought up by this leadership team, someone, I'm not going to say <coughs> HR's name, but pushed back on it pretty hard. And it was so interesting to hear the ops people come in and say, you know, before we assume this isn't a problem, let's collectively bring some of these leaders together and learn about it. And at that moment, you could sort of see light bulbs go up in that room where they were like, wow, you're right. The population that knows the problem and will know the answer already works for us and is so encumbered by this timekeeping exercise that they're really not allowed the opportunity to, to, to flourish. And that's been really an interesting uh, sort of understanding for me. Like that was the moment where I sort of realized, wow, when leadership improves – the entire organization improves. It seems like you should know that earlier in your career, but I didn't. Yeah. Jen, any additions to that? Well, it's uh, in your wheelhouse. The line, alignment around these kind of things, alignment is a conversation as well, and alignment is really targeted. At, it's, a, it's a conversation you have consistently, but uncovering people's resistance and uncovering um, what the, the drag is for them is really, not, like I said, it's, it's not that I don't want to do it, but it's that, am I being left behind? What is the fear that comes with that that I can't vocalize? What is the, am I, is what I've done and what I've built no longer appreciated because I'm holding on to something that I feel gives me a center of power, a purpose, a meaning. 
And if I can be heard and understood and voice that and understand how I can contribute to what I may already be doing, but no one's recognized. Um, those kind of alignment conversations, I think, are, are helpful for those people. So that's part one. What'd you think? I mean, I told you, it's just a lot of content. And man, the expertise in that panel, holy cow, I was humbled like crazy. I mean, anytime you can hang out with people that are smarter than you, you should take it. That's my advice. If you want that. Also, you should always eat maple long johns. Um, that's also a great piece of advice. I can't wait for you to hear part two. And I'll bet you're kind of the same place. I, I like this idea of a cliffhanger. I don't do this very often. Because I take a lot of heat. I really do take kind of a lot of heat for doing it. But this one, I don't know. It seems like we'd be way over an hour if we uh, if we gutted it out. So why not do a shorty? That's the way to do it. So that's part one of the Conklin Conference in Santa Fe. Um, part two, next week. Tune in. I think you'll like it a lot. Learn something new every single day. Bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. Check in on one another. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. <music>